0: Source of true delight in my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight. That I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. You turn in your Bibles uh, to Judges, chapter 2. If you've got the Pew Bible, it's found on page 201. Of course, it's also printed in the uh, bulletin as well, but um, that's just for your convenience uh, because we do jump from the second chapter to later in the book but you might want to have your bibles open and thumb with me to those portions judges is has a frame a twofold introduction okay and then a twofold conclusion uh, the first two chapters are basically spilling a little over into the third chapter form the two introductions, twofold introduction. And then the last five chapters, 17 through 21, form a twofold conclusion. So we're actually reading from the introduction and the conclusion. Try to get a little feel for what this is about. Hopefully this is truly introducing something and it's truly concluding something, right? Beginning in verse 11 then of chapter 2. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And so the uh, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so you can create a circle where at the top there's, there's peace and then uh, there is the deliverance over into foreign oppression. Down here, there is the crying out to God and then the raising up of Deliverer. So, over here, the raising up of oppression, the raising up of a Deliverer. There's peace, but then immediately they fall away again. And this cycle, as we see, will repeat itself in Judges. But it will also be a downward spiral, as we will see. So, if you skip over then to chapter 17... Chapter 17, as I said, begins the uh, coda, if you're thinking in terms of a symphony, uh, the ending, the conclusion. And there's a refrain uh, found twice in the first part of the conclusion and twice in the last part. And it, it more or less frames this whole section and defines it. 17 verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then in 181, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And you see in 191, the same thing. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse of Judges, 21.25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's the reading of God's Word. May He bless it to our understanding and our growth in His grace. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would open up our hearts to receive Your truth and, Lord, that Your Word would build us up, that indeed it would teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness. Uh, Lord, that we might be full of living out the love of God and and love for others. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. When you get into this book, you will hear things like this. (laughs) And other instruments as well. Uh, (laughs) Not just piano, believe me. I won't even ask. I'm sure I could see by the red face if I look strong. but um, um, No, quite in contrast to that nice, nice music, I was about to say that you will hear and read of things like this. A guy has a three-foot sword, and he plunges it into a fat man's belly so far that the hilt of the sword disappears and the dung comes out. Now, if I was just telling you that, you'd probably say, you can't be our pastor anymore. But that's the word of God. Or a woman takes a tent peg and drives it through the skull of a man who's sleeping on the ground. And fixes his head to the, to the ground. That hurt. That hurt. Or a woman is cut into 12 pieces and those pieces are sent around to the tribes of Israel. Now, if you went to see a movie that graphically showed those events, it would have to at least be R-rated. You wouldn't let your children go to that. And right now you're probably thinking, hide my children's ears from this kind of thing. This is the kind of book that we're about to enter into, the book of Judges. It is a gruesome book, a a hard book, a book of violence, a book of destruction, but a book that is amazing in what it can reveal to us about our need of a Savior and a Deliverer the extent of what human beings can do in terms of evil, and yet the greatness of God's salvation, especially, of course, as it is given to us in Christ Jesus. This morning, I want to look at three things. First, how Judges gives us a devolution of morality and religion. A devolution of religion and morality. Next, we want to look at why this occurs, and that's because of their disobedience. So there's a devolution because of disobedience. But then finally, this shows the great need then for a deliverer, specifically a deliverer king. So there's a devolution because of disobedience, which creates the great need for a deliverer king. Now, in Judges... The the structure of judges is very interesting. Many times in scripture, there's this kind of movement. You you walk up to this kind of apex, and then you turn back and go this way, so that everything along the way kind of matches until this turnaround in the middle of the work. It's called a chiasm. That's not important, but. It is important to know that Judges is structured this way to emphasize, in particular, how things begin to unravel. Now, many have pointed out that Joshua is a very positive book. And it's about how Yahweh's, the religion of Yahweh, and by Yahweh is the new pronunciation for Jehovah. It's the name of God in the Old Testament, in case you're not familiar with that. So, when I say Yahweh, I'm just talking about the God of the Bible. Um, and Joshua is about uh, the, the worship of Yahweh hitting the land of Canaan and spreading and taking a foothold. But Judges is about the Israelites becoming Canaanized. Okay? That's not canonized as being saints, that's Canaanized being turned into Canaan in the very way they began to live and think and worship. So Joshua is this great influx and seemingly toehold and establishment of the worship of Yahweh. And then Judges takes the next phase and shows how that just crumbled like a sandcastle before the ways of Canaanite influence and wiped it out, basically. So, positive, negative, Joshua, Judges. The way it's structured is that Gideon is in the middle, okay? Gideon is in the middle and he's where it turns because you've got in the introduction, there's a political problem and a religious problem in the introduction. Then you have pretty positive uh, Judges. Othniel, very positive judge. Ehud, left-handed guy, some reason I like him, because uh, I'm left-handed. Uh, Ehud is the, maybe there's a little bit negative, but it's not really negative because he was a hero who took on the fat man, Eglon, and destroyed him, okay? Then you have Deborah and Barak. There's a slight indication of negative because Barak is hesitant to take leadership. Little bit of a red flag there, okay? Now, that takes us to the apex with Gideon. So we're pretty positive, getting a little bit of a red flag. Gideon starts positive. He renounces idolatry and he fights against God's enemy. But then we have a mirror image of it in the second part of Gideon. He fights against Israelites and he becomes an idolater. There's the turnaround in Gideon. Things are starting to go downhill after that. And then you have these mirror images on the downside of the hill. Positive things on the upside of the hill. Some mirror image negatives on the downside of the hill. So that where you have Barak, in the story of Barak and Deborah, uh, Jael, a woman, puts the tent peg through Sisera, who's the general okay in the counter story of abimelech the israelite leader has his head crushed by some unknown woman off a wall so you've got a woman destroying somebody but here it's an israelite being you know the israelites defeating here it's an israelite getting killed drop to the next mirror image and you've got uh, ehud who stands at the fords to destroy the Canaanites that are trying to get away. Over here, the counter story in Jephthah, he's standing at the fords of Jordan too, but he's killing Ephraimites, Israelites, because there's conflict in Israel. So you have the same kind of ford story, but it's not so good. And then... But the story of Othniel is so positive because in chapter 1 we read of Othniel who's Caleb's son and how he takes this land. And then his wife is this gracious woman who asks, uh, well, he's not Caleb's son, he marries Caleb's daughter. That's what I meant to say. And so Caleb's daughter comes and asks for springs of water, asks for an enlargement of the territory. So there's this great picture of Othniel and the good that this woman brings into his life, this wife. Guess who the counterpart to Othniel is? Anybody? Samson. He had a great woman in his life, right? Yeah. Movies have been made. She betrayed him. Women betrayed him. And So here's the mirror image. So what we have in chapters 3 through 16 is this basic downward spiral with the pivot, the turnaround Gideon to show that things were unraveling at the time of the judges that's the very structure of the book of judges is to proclaim to us this gradual devolution of the uh, of the israelite religion in fact when you get to chapter 19 and the description the description there is it's accurate as to what happened, but it's purposely based upon a description of what happened in Sodom when they sought to attack the angels that came to Sodom. And here, the same a city, but this time it's not in Sodom, although it's the same area of Sodom. It's Gibeah of Benjamin. The Benjamin, Benjamites are doing the same thing that the Sodomites did in Genesis 19. And so it's showing that Israel became Canaanized. Their worship practices, will, uh, there even Gideon and others began to worship. And in the last five chapters, it's terrible in how the worship and the morality just completely unravels. And at the end of Judges, there's no mention of a deliverer. At the end of Judges 21, there's no mention of anything. It's just like, and there was no king. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We're left to wonder, what's going to happen? It begins, the book of Judges, with the death of Joshua. It ends with the need for a king. So you see how it bridges the time of the entrance into the land through Joshua and the time when the kings would be established. Well, secondly then, this is the devolution that's described. And it's... Attributed to their disobedience. We read of this, of course, in, the first, uh, in, in chapter 2. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But it's put in a different way, isn't it, in those last chapters. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, interestingly, this is taken from a phrase in Deuteronomy when God is out, you know, laying out the law. And Moses said, you must not in that day do what you're doing now, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. That will be destructive for you if you do that. So the declaration of Deuteronomy, you must never simply do what you're doing today, doing what is right in your own eyes, or you will face destruction. And so we see that phrase two times in the conclusion What's also interesting about that is earlier in the final devolution of leaders, of so called judges, we find Samson himself, and it says of him when his parents in chapter 14 are trying to urge him not to go to one of the daughters of the Philistines. Uh, His father said, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people? Must you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samuel said to his mother, Get her from me, for she is right in my eyes. And later in verse 7, he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. And they do this because, and, and tie this in with what is said later to indicate Samson represents the whole of the people. This leader represents kind of the locomotive that's dragging the whole people down. This is indicative not only of the leadership, but later in chapter 17 and chapter 21, it is indicative of the whole of the people of God. In fact, George Schwab's commentary is entitled, Right? in their own eyes, to kind of capture the whole of what Judges is about. But then it more often, in fact, seven times, kind of a number of wholeness, it is said they did what was evil, even as we read in chapter 2, verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is repeated six more times. Again and again, after a judge would finish and the land had rest, then they did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There would be a deliverance. The land would have... They again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But what's interesting is that doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord is the same as they did what was right in their own eyes. And the great irony of the last chapters is that there's so much... Supposed righteousness, so much supposed worship, but it's all what they wanted to do in their own eyes. And this is extremely instructive for us as we begin to think about how we obey God as well. Because we have many statements in the New Testament, I'll just read a couple of them for you that speak of this same fundamental approach to life. In Philippians 3. And, and the important thing here is that Paul is not just talking about unbelievers out there. He's talking about people who were among the people of God. But here's how he has to describe them. He says, for many of whom I've often told you, this is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many, I've often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things." Just another way of saying we do what is right in our own eyes. We declare our own morality. We set our own rules. We decide how we're going to think, what we're going to do with our money, what we're going to do with this or that. Everything is what we decide and what we want, without reference to God's will. And we desire these things above God Himself. And so Paul can say in Second Timothy. Chapter 3, as he's talking about the latter days, he says this. And though he's talking about the general uh, nature of mankind or the general culture in which they will live, it spills over to include the false teachers. And this also would embrace any who follow the false teachers. And so he's, he's talking about the world, but he's also talking about the church as it dissolves into the world. Very same situation as judges. But understand this that in the last days, and in Paul's mind, as you read the New Testament, they were in the last days. It's not saying, you know, 2,000 years from now or 5,000 years from now. Uh, they saw themselves in the last days that were initiated at the resur- death and resurrection of Jesus. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. avoid such people. And so this danger of disobedience, Paul saw again and again of people being carved out of the fellowship of God's people, led astray by various doctrines and false leaders, and beginning to follow a So-called gospel that was no longer a gospel. A gospel that didn't issue in a holy life. A gospel that didn't get us to that place where we are giving ourselves up in love and joy to the obedience of God. And so the need then in this devolution caused by disobedience. And we see this in the church in so many places. Both in in terms of its doctrine and how there's been a devolution and a denial of the critical truths of Scripture uh, and and a devolution of the very morality of those who call themselves by the name of Christ. And it shows, as this book indicates, the great need for a deliverer, the great need for a deliverer king. Now, this is interesting. The word for deliver or save is found ten times from Genesis to Joshua. That's six big, fat books of the Old Testament. And this word for deliver or save or deliverer is found ten times. In this one book of Judges, it's found 20 times. If you're up above the earth and looking at a few scattered lights, and then you see a cluster of lights that indicate a town or a city. This is the cluster of lights in Judges. The cluster of lights around this idea of deliverance, of saving. A couple of the Judges, uh, Othniel and Ehud, are are called deliverers, but again and again, their activity is called to deliver or to save. This is a, a constant theme here. Also, This word judges is misleading because you you and I know what you think of when you hear of a judge. These must be guys that are in courtrooms and they're giving decisions, you know, in terms of justice. That really has nothing to do with these guys, even though the common word for judge is used to describe them. But in the wider use of this word, it indicates leaders, especially as they engage the external problems of a society or a country or the people, and so these are really if you 're going to give a a name that would help you understand what they really were and what they really did it, instead of being called judges it'd be called tribal leaders okay the leader deliverers of of this era, the leader deliverers that 's who they were and also, this word deliverer, uh, the, the Hebrew word is Yasha, okay? That's the word that's the basis for the name of Yahshua, Joshua. And also, since it's the basis for the name, Yeshua, Jesus. Okay? So this little cluster of lights around this idea of Yeshua, Yasha, save is sending off some signals about the ultimate one who is the deliverer and savior, Yeshua himself. You shall call his name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. And so it's pointing to the need of a king, but not just any king because Judges certainly shows us again and again the terrible consequences of bad leadership, bad kingship. And... We will explore further at what period this was written, but it's likely to at least partly be involved in arguing for a Davidic kingship, but especially it's, it's announcing the need for a righteous king, for a true and good king. As described back in Deuteronomy, the king, let me just read for you, when he sits on the throne, this is in chapter 17, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by Le- the Levitical priests. Okay? He's going to get a copy. It's going to be approved. It's going to be sanctioned. It's going to be the right words Okay, from beginning to end. This king who's not supposed to multiply wives like Solomon did or multiply horses like Solomon did, which we'll talk about this later, He's supposed to have himself this law, this copy of the law. It shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. He may continue long in his kingdom. That's the king. That's called for. When he says there is no king, they mean there is no true king, righteous king. A king that lives out, that knows and lives out the word of God, that fears and honors and trusts and loves God because he's conditioned and built and changed by the word of God. That is the king. But even the mention of covenant is absent once you leave chapter 2 in Judges. The word of God doesn't play a part. The law of God doesn't play a part. They didn't do what was right in God's eyes. They didn't care what God had said. They didn't care what God had written. They weren't people of the word. They were people of themselves. People doing what was right in their own mind their cries of distress were simply that they were really not at heart cries of repentance but just cries of distress again and again and like a rubber band they just kept popping back to what they wanted to do and it's interesting i read that passage in second timothy 3 about the influx of and what's happening in the latter days and all the immorality that they'll be facing paul later in that chapter calls Timothy in light of this situation. He calls him to the sacred writings which nurtured him from his infancy by which he came to know Jesus Christ, by which he came to be saved. And then he gives that famous, at the end of that chapter, the famous statement about this Scripture, this Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed all scripture is God breathed, he says, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So he says, it's. It's there for teaching. It's there to give us a framework for life, to give us a lens by which we can see all of life. It's there as a scenic outlook to teach us the glory and the majesty and greatness of God and the greatness of His salvation, to bring into our hearts awe and trust and joy and praise and submission, even as the Old Testament was to bring that into the heart of the King. You want to live as kings and queens in this world, you want to live as royalty uh, after the Lord Jesus Christ, then you and I must be people of the Word. And it's, it, this Word not only teaches us, but it gives us reproof and correction. It's a, it cleans the toxic wastes of our lives, the polluted swamps of our lives. It renovates us and reconstructs us and realigns our lives and... He says it's good for training in righteousness so that by this word, we actively and powerfully, effectively live out love for God and love for others. It is only by the word, only by the word that you will do what is right in the Lord's eyes and what is good for you, not giving yourself over to what Peter calls passions that wage war against your soul you want to stop waging war against your soul, then open yourself up to this Word of God which transforms your life continually by God's grace and no longer live and do what is right in your eyes. How can you not do what is right in your own eyes unless you're constantly finding out what is right in the in the eyes of God. Who is this God? What has He done for me? How might I more and more conform my ways to Him? How might I more and more worship Him? It's by that word. But the gospel heart of this word, the gospel heart of this word is that there's a deliverer king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you've heard me quote this many times, but in 2 Corinthians 15, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is talking about the change that occurs in our life. He, he talks about being how, how the love of Christ controls him. But he says, He died for all, verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And you see what happens in the gospel? We... Are doing what is right in our own eyes. We, by nature, do evil in the sight of the Lord. But the gospel comes to us, the revelation of what God has done in Jesus Christ, and we become amazed and astonished that God would love us so much that He would give His only Son. We're amazed because in the proclamation we realize how much we've wronged this God and denied and hated this God, and yet He's acted in love toward us in His Son. And we receive His salvation. We rest in His forgiveness. We rest in Him to transform us. And at that point, and it's just a beginning process and it continues, but we no longer live for ourselves. Up to that point, we live for ourselves. We did what was right in our own eyes. But from that point forward, though haltingly, sometimes not so good, but in an increasing progressive way, we know Him and submit to Him and know Him in His Word, submit to Him in His Word, and we no longer live for ourselves but for Him. That's why John can say, it's not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. He loved us. We didn't love Him. He loved us and gave His Son for us. And that's why he later says, We love because He first loved us. We love Him because He initiated love to us through His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you know, one of the most startling statements and amazing statements to me is found in Numbers 14.11 when the people of God turned away from going into the land. They denied what Joshua and Caleb said uh, that... In spite of the fact that there were kings in high wall cities, that God would deliver them and give the land to them, but they believed the ten spies, you know, kids, ten twelve men went to spy on Canaan, and ten were bad, two were good. Some of the kids have sung that right. Okay. So the ten bad though influenced all of Israel, and they turned away from going into the land. And God said in Numbers 1411, How long will they despise me and not trust me in spite of all the wonders that I've accomplished for them? Now, reframe that in the light of Jesus Christ. How long will they despise me in spite of the wonders that I've accomplished for them in Christ Jesus? May that not be true of anyone here that you would live a life apart from the Word of God. And I promise you, if you're not involved in the Word of God in some way, taking it in personally, discussing it with others, hearing it taught and preached, involving yourself in this Word, eventually, at least as an out, it can't help but despise Him. You can't help but live a life in which you're doing what is right in your own eyes. Because this is the means by which we come to know Him and to submit to Him. But thankfully, as we alluded to in the baptism, it says in Deuteronomy 36, I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. Let us ask God. Circumcise our hearts. Lord, renew me. Reveal the beauty of Christ that I may respond, that I may no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, renew us, transform us in Christ Jesus. And oh, may we delight, Lord, to do your will. May we find you as our great treasure. Oh, Lord, bless us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. The pleasing scene is clouded with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light. Oh, come with blissful ray, Break radiant through the shades of night. Chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away